I would like you to do a little thought experiment. And this thought experiment requires you to imagine a sin. Now, don't think about it too long. But I would like you to think about that sin and what it was to commit it, um, to partake of it, whatever it might be. And, and I also know that there are people in this room this morning who, who may not even uh, accept sin as a category. Um, it may be just something that you do that you regret. And if that's you, fine. Just think of something then that you've done that you later regretted, okay? Whether it's a sin or regret, think about it for a minute. Now, whatever that sin or regret is, it's a pretty good bet that whatever it is you're thinking, in the moment you committed it, it was kind of okay. It was kind of a delight. Kind of a, there was a payoff there a little bit. Like, um, vengeful anger in the moment can really feel good. It's, it's delicious almost, right? Um, illicit sex, uh, you know, people wouldn't do that if there wasn't some sort of payoff in the moment, okay? And if you steal something from somebody else, there is a tangible and yet also intangible gain. Every single one of those, even in the moment, even when you have to either confess it later or just be regretful of it later, there was a payoff. We are this morning looking to the Proverbs and the Psalms for wisdom about something that it calls a sin that unlike anything else that you might have just thought of, has absolutely no enjoyment in the commission of it. There is no payoff from beginning to end of it and all of its wake. Which leaves the question, why in the world will we ever indulge in it if there's no goodness to us either in the middle of it or afterwards? What am I talking about? That one sin that is perhaps unlike every other sin or every other act of folly or every act of regret you might commit, that thing is envy. And we're all familiar with it. And we need wisdom to be able to confront it. Because if we don't enjoy doing it and doing it anyway, what hope have we of not getting caught up in it? So we're going to listen both to a couple texts in the Proverbs and then an elaboration of those texts sort of by way of a story in one of the Psalms. And we're going to ask ourselves three things about envy. What is at the bottom of the experience of it? Where is the futility in it? But most importantly, how do you escape from it? What's the experience of it? Where's the futility in it? And most importantly, how do you escape from it? If you're able to stand, we're going to start in the Proverbs and finish in the Psalms, would you? We'll start in Proverbs chapter 14. And make our way. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. 
When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you're going to understand envy, you've got to talk about the experience of it. Now, we really probably need to define what we mean by envy because um, you and I tend to domesticate the idea, right? Um, we have a, an older model RV, and uh, one weekend we were camping, uh, we watched one of those huge rigs drive in, right? You know, satellite TV, you know, tripped out with everything, um, you know, mother of pearl inlay, I don't know. Uh, and um, uh, Jedediah looks at that, and, and he goes, wow. And my wife says, Jedediah, you know what that is? That's envy. And he said, I want an envy. (laughs) See, you're laughing because you and I have domesticated envy. We are oh green with envy, right? I'm just so green with envy. But look, if, if, if it's that banal, then why in the world are these guys knickers in a wad about envy? Excuse me. Why are the sages of Proverbs, why is the psalmist so exercised about the experience of envy? Because, look, um, we we get our first taste of it when we're in the nursery, right, kids? Uh, Some kid steals your Legos and, like, ain't nobody got time for that. I don't, give me my Legos back. Move on. Like, you want to hit them because that's not fair. That's unjust. And then even when you get a little bit older and you find yourself at the, uh, the playground at recess, um, you get this really hollow feeling when you discover that you're going to be the last person picked from the kickball tournament. Happens to other people. Um, it's just it's the way it happens. It just comes down to you, and you don't know what to do with it. And, and, and that's the taste of envy, but it's not the fullness of it. Envy is deeper. Envy lasts longer, and it has untold implications. The, the Hebrew word there for envy, it's, it's the Hebrew word kinah, and it refers most basically to a very intense, passionate zeal. It's not this fleeting thing. It's, it's an abiding thing. And, and the, the context of that verb will determine whether it is to be interpreted as a commendable sort of passion or not. And in the situations we find here in the Proverbs and the Psalms, that, that verb because of context, is, is to be understood as something indefensible. So if you want to find um, a really basic definition of what envy is, I think you couldn't do better than what you find from a, an author named Rebecca Conondike de Young who says this, envy is feeling bitter when others have it better. That there is a, a notation you're making of a disparity a disparity between two things. And that disparity, you are not simply observing, you're feeling it. And the feeling is deep. And as you might have begun to pick up on here in these passages, as quickly as they go by, that experience can operate in two very different sets of circumstances. 
The first set of circumstances gets a lot more playtime in these passages. So we're going to start there. And, and the, that circumstance has everything to do with envying those you're in opposition to or you have a problem with. And you hear about that experience in the Proverbs there in chapter 23 and then in the first part of 73. Let not your heart envy sinners, the sage says. And then in Psalm 73, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is not envy of those people. This is envy of the deal that they appear to be getting and of the raw deal you seem to also be getting. That's the way you are envying it. You are deeply exercised by that disparity. Now, we don't have a clue much about the context of Psalm 73. We can make an educated guess here or there. We don't know who the arrogant folk is they're referring to or under what circumstances those that are acting unjustly are being treated as if they were acting righteously. We don't know the context, but we don't have to. Because we're all familiar with what's going on there. We get it because we've been there. And if you want to like, carve out a very narrow uh, example or a narrow slice of that experience, then again, you could do worse than hear what um, Anne Lamott wrote in a chapter of her book, Bird by Bird. She says this, envy is uh, this, some wonderful dazzling successes are going to happen for some of the most awful, angry, undeserving writers you know, people who are, in other words, not you. <laughs> that there is this frustration, this, this inner antagonism about this disparity between how they act and what they're getting, and you feel it, and it feels rotten. And it feels rotten because there's an underlying belief there that we'll get to momentarily, but it's not just you note it, it's not that you feel it, it's that, that there's something that you're believing in that moment. But regardless of what you're believing, the experience should be familiar because, look, kids, I know there has been some jerk in your school, some bully, who puts a smile on all the teachers' faces. And when they're not looking, he punches people on the back. And you think, why are they getting that kind of treatment? And then you work in, a, in an employment, and you see colleagues that, again, are suck-ups to their boss. But when the boss isn't looking, they stab people in the back, and they still get a promotion. And I don't know if this happens to anybody else, but there are politicians that you observe who grease the palms of everybody they meet, but who have compromised every promise that they've offered, every conviction that they held, and still people come together in throngs to celebrate their goodness. And you see that disparity, and it happens every day, in every era, in every circumstance, and it feels rotten. So here's a question then. Wait a minute. These texts are not calling out these unjust people. These texts are calling out me, who might be envying them. Why? All of this injustice and the problem is with me? Are you saying, or are these texts saying, that, that I should not be disturbed by that disparity? That I should just become indifferent and stoic toward what I say in the way of injustice? That is not what it's saying. The issue is not the feeling itself. 
based upon what you observe about the disparity between justice or unjustness. It has everything to do with what that feeling is doing in and through you. That's the problem. And if you're not aware of it, it will do great damage to you. When it says there in, in chapter seven, Psalm 73, it'll says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. The you there is God. And in the midst of this psalmist's reflection upon his experience of envy, he realizes, he's come to realize, he is so exercised of heart that he is brutish which is just a highfalutin words of saying he acted stupidly. He made choices that would sort of defied common sense, that, that revealed a whole loss of perspective, and that his restraint was no greater than an animal's. Essentially in that moment when he says, I was brutish towards you, he was essentially saying to the Lord, you failed. You have no idea what you're doing. You have dropped the ball. And he is now contrite about that experience. It is that lack of restraint that leads him to think this envy has taken me to places I did not intend to go. And you know what? That, that envy, it, it even has an acronym today in the psychological literature. You, you have heard, likely, of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. There is also P-T-E-D, post-traumatic embitterment disorder. Look it up. I'm not making it up. It's there. It's the experience of a prolonged, profound, unresolved disappointment, a profound sense of unfairness. It is an inability to let it go, to adjust, to adapt, and that consumes you. It's a modern way of putting a very ancient malady. Envy will eat you up, and wherever injustice is, it is both a chronic and contagious experience. But you and I know that envy does not only rear its head where we see a disparity between one's behavior and what one receives. In fact, I think you and I are perhaps more familiar with the other place that envy begins to rear its head. And it has to do with our envy of those we know. The envy of those we might even admire. The envy of those we might even be in a love relationship with. And you kind of pick up that more generic sense in the very first passage in the Proverbs when it says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones not sing, like the song said, but rot. Here, there's, there's no, again, no context, but there's no indication that this is somebody that has an argument with somebody. There's no sense in which this person you envy is somebody that's acting inappropriately or unkindly or without righteousness. This is just bald-faced, generic envy. And however it is construed, it is defined as the very opposite of a heart that's at peace. It's defined as the very opposite of a heart that's of any use to anyone. The bones that are rotting is the, the closest thing it can explain. Um, 
you know, there's a wonderful example of it in the newest installment of The Incredibles. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. But you know, if you've seen it, that that story um, is uh, taking place right after the first one. And, and uh, now, um, Mr. Incredible, who is married to Elastigirl, they have been invited to come back into service for the good of all people as superheroes. However, the call has gone out, who? To his wife. And how does Mr. Incredible respond to the notion that she's going to get more airtime? Oh, I'm so happy for you, honey. He's just exercised of heart because he just can't believe this one he loves. Now he wishes he had what she has. And they're married. You can't love another person more like that. And yet there is something about the moment that he is desperately hollow inside. And uh, to put it in a little bit more negatively, uh, Frederick Buechner, he said this is his definition of envy. Envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else be as unsuccessful as you are. <laughs> oh, you lost your job? I'm so sorry. It's, it's envying what they have. But it's also wishing that they didn't have what they had. It's... It's worse than jealousy. It's, it's more acrid. It, it smells like burned wire. Because you're not just wanting uh, some sort of object. You're not wanting some sort of thing. You, what you're longing for in your envy is something that accrues to some form of status for you. How you're recognized, how you're seen, how you see yourself. You, you see the, the brilliance in another person and you just can't rejoice with them. Uh, you ever seen Goodwill Hunting? You know that story is about this, this kid that's a janitor at MIT, but who has this profound ability to do math and calculus and physics, and eventually he gets mentored by this, you know, multi-PhD physics professor. And after a while, even that PhD professor realizes he's not as smart as the kid. And he sits down and throws his papers up in the air saying, I could never be like you. And he's defeated. That's envy. He can't rejoice in the gift if it's greater than his own. He can't rejoice that he's being surpassed. And in that is our folly. In that is our sickness. And I don't know if somebody who's put it better in trying to explain the root of all of that than something that Donald Miller wrote in a book called um, Searching for God Knows What. He, he tells it from... Um, the imaginary experience of aliens who come and visit Earth for a while and observe human nature and then send a message back to their planet. And if he imagines that missive, uh, it would come out like this. Humans as a species are constantly and in every way comparing themselves to one another. Um, who does that, right? Which, given the brief nature of their existence, seems an oddity and for that matter a waste. Nevertheless, this is the driving influence behind every human social development, their emotional health and sense of joy, and sadly, their greatest tragedies. It's as though something that helped them function and live well has gone missing, and they are pining for that missing thing in all sorts of odd methods, none of which are working. To be sure, it's killing them, and yet sustaining them. Sustaining their social and economic systems, they are an entirely beautiful people with a terrible problem. We all compare. You've sized each other up when you walked in the room today in some form or fashion, whether you knew it or not, because you're so used to doing it. 
You create indexes for one another, indices by which you make a certain determination about all sorts of things. You do it, but, but somehow we make this leap between in the comparison, something else changes, and that's where Donald Miller is saying something's gone missing. When the psalmist says in Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of him, a son of man that you care for him? What he's reveling in is the way in which God has this inherent respect for humanity. And we'll say, yeah, 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 but if we forget that in the next breath, because then we're comparing ourselves to somebody else and feeling hollow and not rejoicing with them. That's what's gone missing. That's what's broken. We compare, and then we end up envying. What happens in envy is this. You and I end up taking doubt on faith. Uh, that's in a turn of phrase, right? You, you, know, you take other things on faith, what, taking doubt on faith. What do I mean? Um, in order to envy, you have to doubt God's goodness based upon more immediate, observable, but incomplete evidence. In other words, by faith. And so to envy is to doubt God's goodness, doubt his sufficiency, and therefore you make all sorts of deductions. So, in keeping with the two versions of envy we're talking about, you can observe the presence of deep prevailing injustice. And there's plenty of evidence out there. But then you can deduce from that that there must not be any such thing as justice. That there must be no God who is interested in justice or pursuing it. I, I have told you the story before about uh, I'm sitting outside an Irish pub in Dallas and, and there's a guy that's sitting there with me and he, if he wasn't three sheets to the wind, he was two sheets to the wind. But there he was, he strikes up a conversation, we go back and forth, and eventually he tells me that he's an attorney, and I kind of say at some point in the conversation, hey man, where does justice come from? Where do you ground it? And he looks at me with this wry smile, ain't no justice. He's a lawyer, and there's no justice. Which is this great irony, right? Like if you don't believe in anything behind justness, then why are you so angry about injustice? That ought to just be the way things are. You may not like it, but you can't be really morally exercised about it. You can't make that deduction. But let's take it the other side, the other form of envy, where you, you envy people you love or you admire. You, you, can take, you, can, you can take doubt on faith by observing a disparity between you and other, and then you can make this deduction that the, different, the differences in aptitudes speak to a difference in worth. You can jump there. You can let the evidence lead you there. You can, you can take that on faith. And that's fine. There's a, there's a certain logic to it. There's a certain coherence to making those choices. But here's the deal. If you go there, if you let that evidence take you to those conclusions, you have just set yourself up for futility. Why is that? I've just spent several minutes talking to you about the experience of envy. Now let's get into the futility in it. The futility you, you can't go without. Now, some of that futility we've already heard in just the description of the experience of envy. If there, is an, if there is no tranquility in your heart, if you give yourself to acting stupidly and, and being unrestrained in all of your work, then you've already begun to discover that, like, why would I want to do any of that? I wouldn't, so why do I go there? Yet I do. But if you look a little further 
that futility is a little sharper. And you discover that the envy is, is not so much about injustice. Because, yes, it will feel in the moment like righteous indignation. But the futility of envy when it comes to envying those we oppose is that if you indulge it, you are tapping into the same stuff that juices revenge. If you let envy be what animates the way you respond to that disparity of injustice, you are tapping into the same stuff that will lead to revenge. Now, I'm about to show you a clip from the first Incredibles in which you will see that writ large. I know it's a movie. I know it's a kid's film. But there's something about it that I think we can all resonate with. Just to show you know, Syndrome, the guy with the wavy orange hair, was once a kid that wanted to be just like Mr. Incredible. Well, watch what happens when it didn't turn out like he hoped it would. It's bigger! It's better! Ladies and gentlemen, it's too much for Mr. Incredible! Whoa, whoa! It's finally ready! You, you know, I went through quite a few supers to get it worthy to fight you, but man, it wasn't good enough! After you trashed the last one, I had to make some major modifications. Sure, it was difficult, but you are worth it. I mean, after all, I am your biggest fan. Buddy? My name is not Buddy! And it's not Incrediboy either! That ship has sailed! All I wanted was to help you. I only wanted to help! And what did you say to me? Fly home, buddy. I work alone. It tore me apart. But I learned an important lesson. You can't count on anyone, especially your heroes. I was wrong to treat you that way. I'm sorry. See? Now you respect me, because I'm a threat. Huh? Huh? Oh, come on! You gotta admit this is cool! Just like a movie! The robot will emerge dramatically, do some damage, throw in some screaming people, and just when all hope is lost, Syndrome will save the day! I'll be a bigger hero than you ever were! You mean you killed off real heroes so that you could pretend to be one? Oh, I'm real. Real enough to defeat you! And I did it without your precious gifts, your oh-so-special powers. I'll give them heroics. I'll give them the most spectacular heroics anyone's ever seen! And when I'm old and I've had my fun, I'll sell my inventions so that everyone can be superheroes. Everyone can be super! And with everyone super, <laughs> no one will be. <laughs> right? The whole, the whole fiendish thing right there. Okay, it's a movie, yeah, but look, the kid starts out admiring the person that he'd like to emulate, right? And then that doesn't work out. Plan's denied. What happens? Something turns really dark within. And eventually it becomes a vengeful sort of spirit. You let envy be what animates you. You can let an example become an enemy. And I know that's a movie, but let's talk about real life. Let's talk about history. I've been talking about Alexander Hamilton recently in the last few weeks. You read his biography, you realize that he was an attorney. And before the revolution, those who were British loyalists, they had the upper hand. And those who were just colonists that wanted some sort of freedom, they had no hand. And they looked with great resentment and bitterness 
towards those British loyalists. But when the revolution happened and the tables were turned, guess what? Guess what those colonists who now had power did? They didn't enact all of these wonderfully just laws that treated everybody with equity. They ended up passing all sorts of draconian laws that began to try to marginalize the people that marginalized them. And it's Alexander Hamilton that comes to the defense in law for the British loyalists so that they could be treated fairly. You let envy animate all your problems with injustice, you are tapping into the same stuff that will make you into a vengeful person. That's its futility. That futility doesn't just happen with those we're opposing to. It's also true in those we admire. Envy, if we look down deeply into what it is, it's out to fill a hole. But it's like being in the hole and trying to use your own shovel to dig your way out, and you can't. You just, with every exertion, dig it deeper. Envy is like that. Because this is the truth. If envy is this desperate attempt to have what another has, let's just imagine for the moment that you get what they have. Let's say that you're successful. You saw what they wanted. You saw what came with it. You loved what they had, and you worked your tail off to get it. And so you get it. And there is some sort of inner satisfaction maybe having gotten there. But guess what? Your circumstances could change tomorrow. And being animated by envy to fill that hole with whatever you thought they had that would make you happy, you get it, and then there's a new hole. And you wonder, why did I let that go there? Envy will also drive a wedge between those you love and yourself. Not sure? Let me show you another clip. This one from This Is Us. When those three people, those three kids are now in their 30s, and one of them has suffered from alcoholism, and he's going through counseling, and they bring the whole family in to talk it out. Listen where envy plays out in a bunch of family members that have loved each other for 30 years. Go ahead, Kevin. I guess my entire childhood, I always felt like I came in second to you two with mom and dad. You know, like I was uh, like fifth wheel of the family. Kevin, that's crazy. Kate, please, let Kevin speak. Well, Kate, it's just you had dad. Right? You had dad and, and Randall, you had mom. You two were like two peas in a pod. That's not true. I loved you all equally. Rebecca, Kevin is telling you how he feels right now, and you will all have a chance to let him know how you feel later on. Anyway, I, I think feeling that way when I was a kid, I just developed this, this voice in my head that would just sort of repeat, saying, you're not enough. And, and I tried to drown that voice out with things like uh, football, or acting, or fame. And, um, and I think it was only a matter of time before I turned to something worse. What he thought his siblings had from his parents creates this hole in his heart. He's trying to fill it, and he can't fill it any other way. So where does he go? He goes to other places. So envy has already wreaked its havoc within a family, and now it's leading him to go in directions to, to medicate his soul for what he thinks he needs in order to be happy. And now they're all sitting in a room talking about him being addicted. Envy 
reflects a futility that will not end unless it's confronted, unless it's uprooted, unless it's supplanted. It's more than just an acquisition of stuff. The futility of envy is in that you are constantly seeking a status. And that status is a perpetually unstable identity if you let envy be your animating principle. If you're trying to fill that hole with some form of recognition, again, like I said in the front end, your world can turn upside down tomorrow. You could be elected the president of your firm tomorrow because you think that will make you happy, and then two weeks later, you are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And then what? If you have let envy animate you in that way, you have set yourself up for futility. And that's fine that we understand that. But when you go there, if you are seduced by that, you have just stepped into the myth of Sisyphus. Remember that, that story from high school Greek myth, right? The, the, the gods consign him, Sisyphus, to live in this, in this cavern, and he can leave if he can just um, push this boulder up the side, and if he can get it over the crest, he can get out. But every time he pushes, 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 he gets really close, it's too heavy, he breaks under his legs, buckle under the weight of it, and he falls back down on the roll. The, the, the stone falls back down, and he is left where he was before. If envy is what's animating you, you have stepped into that myth, and you will not step out unless something comes to your rescue. There are any number of instances where I have caught myself green-handed, if you will, envying someone. And in that moment, I didn't know what to do other than to say, I don't know what to do. And you know what? The psalmist says as much. In 73, 16, you heard them say, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Fine, you say it's futile to pursue it, then why do I find myself so easily indulging it? Why do I go there? Why do I have this hollow feeling that I can't rejoice with others who are doing well or surpassing me in some way? How do I escape from it? He answers his own question in the next verse there in 73:17. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. He is arguing this. The only thing that will supplant your envy, the only way to escape from it, is to worship. Worship is your escape from envy. Why worship? Listen again to 23.16 in Proverbs. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all day. Don't envy them, just Fear the Lord. Now, what, fear, fear how? Like, be afraid of God? No, no, it's more nuanced than that. This fear specifically is in terms of believing that God has his hand in history. That God has an interest in justice. And we gather here each Sunday, not just to see each other, not just to have good coffee, not just to sing a few songs, but to be reminded and reconnected with some ideas, one of which is God is not uninvolved. And if you believe that he is involved, that he is interested, then yes, when injustice prevails, like it does in every place, at every time, in every era, 
you may still be reconnected to the thought that though injustice prevails, it will not prevail forever. Yeah, we're in Friday, but Sunday's coming. Of those who perpetrate injustice, the psalmist is reminded that when he worshiped, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. That what persists now will not persist forever. There is a reason for hope. What, what, is that, what is that meant to do in us? What is that promise that, that just, justice will prevail? What is that meant to do in us? Is it, is it meant to lull us sort of into a passivity that just says, well, everything will be fine in time and we just have to suffer? Is that really where it's going? No. What does Jesus have us pray? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the eternal justice that we all have a reason to long for and hope for and look forward to spills back into the present that we then pray for and work for and long for now. We don't give up even though we have to wait. What this means is that we're supposed to look at that disparity between injustice and what the just deserve and in worshiping, we don't let the feeling or our anguish devolve into that very same wretchedness we despise in others. We don't let our hatred of what we see turn about hatred in us such that we become unproductive in this world. That's where that hope, that worship is out to come for. That's what it means to be reconnected to God's hand in history. And not just his hand in history. In worship, we're to be reminded of what can't be taken from us. And it goes really fast there at the end of the psalm. I'm continuing with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you'll receive me to glory. Whom I have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You may lose everything. Your every effort may be thwarted. Your every dream may be denied. You may lose your mind before you sleep. But if God is, you are not lost to God. God remains. That's what we sang earlier. You lose all of that. God remains present to us, guiding, counseling, receiving us into his glory. Now look, those are encouraging thoughts. They are hopeful words. But what most confirms them? I know I'd like to believe them. I know they're up there on the slide and they're here in the Bible, but what most confirms their truth? Why are those words not simply naive optimism? Because when they brought this guy before him in shackles, one who had been accused of blasphemy, one who had been insinuated as the perpetrator of sedition, Pilate looks on that guy and immediately sniffs a rat. And in Matthew 27, it says, straight up, Pilate says, Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up to him. He knows a shakedown when he sees it. He knows a setup when he sees it. And Jesus, in that moment, will shortly thereafter feel the full fury of envy. 
and he will be murdered in plain sight. But in his dying, you and I are forgiven. And in his dying, you and I are humbled. And in his dying, you and I have justice satisfied on our behalf. And he does that, and it's done, and there's no more to think about it. But it's in his rising and in his living that he shows us a way of confronting injustice that is not out of envy. He shows us a way of understanding our portion and pursuing whatever faithful responsibility we have, but not out of envy. How does that help? Why does his cross and his life speak to our struggle with envy? I'll just take them one at a time then. When it comes to our struggle of seeing the disparity between the wicked prospering, if in Jesus God shows himself the Lord over death, then it's not too much of a stretch to believe that he is Lord also over history and even of injustice and justice. That you are not a fool to believe that God has his hand in even those things, and you are not a fool to think that there may be an eternal justice still yet to come. If the Lord works thusly, longing for an eternal justice and working for a justice now, that's what worship does for us in his son. And when it comes to those we envy, those we admire, those we are having a hard time really celebrating with, those that make us feel hollow inside, if in Jesus we have something that can't be taken from us because it wasn't us that obtained it, if we have in him his presence and a portion and inheritance that can never be lost, then what's true of it is this. Life is not a race to the top. Life is not a lifelong struggle to establish some status. And when we get that, it frees us. It frees us to take joy in another person's aptitudes because we can finally see those aptitudes and goodnesses as good gifts. And when we see him as that, we give ourselves to the work that we have and faithfully, but not as an index of our worth. Because envy is not at work. I told you there was a reason we sang Bob Dylan at the beginning of this worship service. And that is because in this life, you may either choose to follow and seek a pure love or one that is watered down. And so you heard him sing, love that's pure, won't lead you astray, won't hold you back, won't mess up your day, won't pervert you, corrupt you with stupid wishes. It don't make you envious. It won't make you suspicious. Envy is the pursuit of a thing that will not love you back. It is a watered down love. But in our worship, we are seeking that which we believe is a pure love. And it's the only sufficient love to supplant our envy. Let's pray. May it be unto us as you have said, sir. In Jesus' name, amen.